The Google Podcast app is going away in April. Right now, I want you to take a look at the podcast app you're using right now. Maybe it's time for a new one. Check out podcastapps.com and try a new one for free right now. That's podcastapps.com. This is Writing Class Radio, where you'll hear true personal stories from the students in our class and learn a little bit about how to write your own stories. I'm Andrea Askowitz, the teacher of the class. I'm Allison Langer, a student in the class. Together we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit and figure out who we are. There's no place in the world like writing class. And we want to bring you in. Today on our show, we're talking about identity, how sometimes what we show on the outside is not what we feel on the inside. That's why figuring out who we are is so important in personal storytelling. You have to know who you are or try to figure out who you are through the writing. Sometimes I'm not sure who I am. Am I presenting the way I want to be perceived? Like the other day, I wore flip-flops and white khakis to a fancy pool party, my typical style. And I wanted it to look like I didn't try too hard, like I'm natural and confident. But when I got there and everyone was in high heels and cute jumpsuits, I was annoyed that I didn't fit in. I don't want to look like I'm clueless and and ugly. I don't want everyone to think I don't know how to dress. Oh, geez. You don't know how you come across. I totally do know how I come across. No, you don't. You come across totally confident and totally secure and casual and like you don't give a fucking shit how you come across. And you're totally intimidating. Really? Yeah. Everyone is afraid of you. Even me. (laughs) That's bullshit. Whatever. All right. Let's talk about the episode. On this episode, you'll hear from three students. First, Aaron Curtis, who is a blogger and bookseller. Then from Toby Ash, who's a philanthropist and grant writer. And last, you'll hear a story by Yadira Peralta, who is a poet, a teacher, and the organizer of the Palm Beach Poetry Festival. All three stories reveal this. What people see on the outside may not reflect what's on the inside. First up is Aaron Curtis, who answered an in-class prompt. A prompt can be a single word or a sentence meant, just meant to get us writing. In class, we usually give 8, 10, maybe 15 minutes, and then we write our asses off. This is what Aaron wrote after Andrea gave the prompt, what are you worried about? Uh, Here's something I'm worried about, how I present to the world. I went to a drag brunch on Sunday, and the woman who gathered us all together said, thanks for being a good sport. I had no idea what she was talking about. Well, this kind of thing is so far outside your comfort zone, she said. Uh, So I quizzed them. Besides Karen, everyone there was someone I was meeting for the first time. They assured me I didn't look too conservative. Which means, of course, that I look conservative. (laughs) I could have mentioned, I suppose, that I used to date a drag queen. His name was Michael, his drag name was Marissa, and he was the most beautiful creature I'd ever seen. When I think of angels, I think they're androgynous. And when you looked at Michael, there was, there was a moment of wondering where exactly he landed gender-wise. I used to hold hands with him when we walked downtown, daring anyone to say anything. I would rather have taken a beating than hide. 
but I guess I looked a little too ready to fight. It threw him because he said dating bisexual men usually meant a lot of sneaking around and hiding. He wasn't used to being in public with a guy. I wonder now where that fearlessness went. I moved to Miami and became a white fella. (laughs) After years of being othered, of rejecting the culture that rejected me, I moved to the 305 and laid that burden down. I feel no small measure of guilt for this. I've lost touch, well, not at the moment, but for a long time, I lost touch with who I am, who I was growing up, what it meant to be raised by a strong Turtle Clan mother. And here I find out, and trying to style myself in a way that's flattering, that I've made myself into a Republican. (laughs) The end. Damn. His view of himself on the inside does not match his appearance on the outside. He's queer and he goes to a drag brunch accidentally disguised as a Republican. (laughs) It's not in the story. But I know he's been married for 24 years to do different women. So, well, not at the same time, of course. We're not in Utah. But I was surprised to hear he went to a drag brunch. But after this story, him going to a drag brunch doesn't surprise me. I want to say how impressed I am with Aaron. His ease writing about dating a drag queen is amazing. That's not easy. He says he wonders where that fearlessness went. Well, I think it's back. Total badass, Aaron. What's so cool about the story is it shows that identity isn't always obvious. Okay, can we talk about the writing for a second? Okay, so after a prompt response, we asked the students to talk about what drew them in and what they want to know more about. I want to know more about his guilt for presenting as a white fella. Also, I want to know more about what it meant to be raised by a turtle clan mother, which I think means Native American. But what exactly does that mean about his upbringing? What drew me in was the narrator's voice. I moved to Miami and became a white fella. That's (laughs) funny sounding. Yeah. Well, I want to know what Aaron looks like. He doesn't really talk about it in this piece. Like what, you know, the listener can't see him. He would need to describe what he was wearing for the listener or the reader to really get a a real idea about who Aaron is and what Aaron looks like. Yeah, we want Aaron to do all that. Keep going with this story. For more Aaron, listen to episode 32. Next up is Toby Ash, who reads her response to the prompt, What's Under the Veneer? Veneer, the shiny hard shellac on a piece of furniture. The shininess is slightly reflective, showing the person looking at it a tiny picture of themselves. So what's under my veneer? I think of myself as a special version of a desk. It's called a secretary. It has a drop-down desk, but it's also a chest of drawers. The veneer is crystalline and requires constant polishing to keep the shiny finish. So in my case, Maintenance of the female kind. The drawers hold my stories, my secrets, my dreams, and all the parts of me that lay right there, closed shut, merely waiting for an opportunity for it to open. The drop-down desk part is the worker part of me, always ready to take on a project, do an event, write a grant, be useful, productive, efficient. The drop-down part can be lifted up, so all you see is the veneer, that shiny coating. My veneer is top quality, not the inferior paint. You could put a glass of water on it without a coaster, and it wouldn't leave a permanent mark. But that veneer in those closed drawers doesn't allow air or sunshine in. That veneer is used on antiques to keep 
the pattern of the fine wood beautiful, but it doesn't allow the wood to breathe, expand and contract. Just because the wood is no longer attached to the tree doesn't mean it's not alive. So I'm trapped by my fine veneer, at times unable to let out those deep sighs, the stormy sobs, the raucous laughter, the veneer that took so many painstaking years to apply so perfectly is in a sense my prison. I am totally impressed with how this narrator committed to this metaphor. She committed for the whole story. Oh, I totally get this narrator. I love her voice. I love that she's comparing herself to a beautiful, thick-skinned desk. It makes me wonder what the hell this woman has gone through in her life. Like, why is she hiding behind this veneer? I want to hear everything. Now I want her to tell us what's in her drawers. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you do. (laughs) That sounds so bad. In her desk drawers. Right. Okay, I want her secrets. I want her to lay them down. Yeah, these secrets. All of our secrets, our little veneer we all hide behind. I actually think I'm pretty much who I present to the world. (laughs) You're an Ivy League, educated, aging ex-tennis playing hippie. Kind of like Billie Jean King. You mean as played by Emma Stone? Yeah, uh (laughs) uh-huh. No. (laughs) No, What? Uh... Well, you're calling me Billie Jean King? Well, at least you're not wearing your Virginia Woolf bun. No. no. Um, okay, I agree with you. Not about the Emma Stone, but that you, you, are, <laughs> you are who you present. I mean, inside, for sure. You're the same person I met that first day I walked into your class eight years ago. And I admire that, really. I hope that after these all these years, these eight years, that um, I am more like you. Oh, shit. God, shit. Allison just said something really nice on record. Yeah. (laughs) If you want to hear more from Toby, check out our bonus New Year's Eve episode from season one. We have one more story for you about identity. But before we get to Yadira's story, a word from our sponsor. We're back. This is Allison, and we're talking about identity, how we present to the world, and who we think we are. The stories you've heard so far came from a prompt Andrea gave in class. Like I said... They're timed, and it's rare we get to really dive in and get the whole story. But Yadira took the prompt home and developed a whole story. Here's Yadira reading her essay, My Face. I can't sleep, so I decide to take selfies. I'm not a narcissist or an aspiring Kardashian. I actually hate being in front of the camera. But I want to try the viral Google Arts and Culture app. The app's main purpose is to explore art collections. It takes your selfie and pairs it with several art world doppelgangers. Sometimes the results are uncanny. Online, there's a profile portrait of Donald Trump side by side with a bloated Botero face. It's probably doctored, but you get the picture. Sometimes the results are deep and true. My friend Gabby has lived her life as a woman, but is gender fluid. She wears bow ties and her short blonde hair is often styled into a pompadour. She was paired with a brooding young man from a romantic era oil painting. When this happened, I thought, is this coincidence or can the app bore through to the center of you and truly read identity? 
I hold the phone up to my face and, as I've seen the photogenic women and my family do over and over again throughout the years, I shift and pivot to show the camera different angles. I look bedraggled at midnight, my curly hair frizzy and askew, but I choose one selfie and run it through the app. The results are as follows, a sweet round-faced black toddler, a smiling waitress serving musicians in an oil painting of the Harlem Renaissance, and a woman wearing a headscarf and hooped earrings from a street mural in Zimbabwe. I save each image before placing the phone on the nightstand. I drift off to sleep not sure if any of these faces look like me. But does this app recognize something undeniable? When I was a 22-year-old college student living in Queens, New York, my mother called from Miami. My father's older brother, Arturo, passed away. I never met my uncle Arturo. He was a ghost from my father's side of the family. He and my father were merchant marines together until my father volunteered to fight in Vietnam. There, my father lost his right leg during his second tour of duty and eventually moved back to his native Honduras. For most of my life, it wasn't clear why my uncle wasn't in our lives, why his immediate family, my aunts and grandparents never mentioned him. When my father did refer to him, his memories of going to parties with his brother and staying up late listening to Motown records, there was never any bitterness in his voice. When I was in middle school, just when my straight hair began changing texture, becoming a new world of very tight curls, my mother told me that my uncle married an African-American woman in the 1970s and settled in the neighborhood of East New York in Brooklyn, that as a result, my grandparents and aunts had disowned him, that my father hadn't for a time. My dad and my uncle lived and worked and played together during the best years of their lives as merchant marines, as friends, and as brothers. On the phone, my mother told me that the funeral and wake would be in East New York, only 16 miles from my apartment in Astoria, Queens. As I listened to my mother, I felt something like confusion mixed with regret. I never contacted my uncle. My mother's usually sweet voice hardened. She was flying up the next day to attend all the services with me. When my father heard his brother died, he fell into a deep depression and refused to get out of bed and no one else from my father's immediate family was coming. She thought this absence was unacceptable, something that would never happen on her side of the family. When I mentioned East New York to my roommate, she raised her eyebrows high and said, wow, the neighborhood was considered the murder capital of New York City. A day after my mom arrived, we were bundled up in the back seat of a gypsy cab headed to the funeral home sometime after the early winter sun had set. The streets were deserted, like Night of the Living Dead deserted, and, no lie, the occasional sound of gunfire. But when we entered the funeral home, it was surprisingly warm and bright. There was an organist playing standard hymns and an open casket at the end of the chapel. Every face in that room was black. That night at my uncle's apartment, 
I met cousins and a lot of women who openly admitted in gushing terms, and to my mother even, to having dated or admired my dad when he was younger. Apparently, he had been a snazzy dresser and a good dancer. Some of the women were native New Yorkers and African American, but a lot of these women spoke a Bay Islands English, a heavily accented Creole spoken in my dad's hometown of Ratan, and which I later learned is linguistically related to the English spoken in the Cayman Islands. Often during the night, one of these black Honduran women would stop dead at the side of me to utter, you must be Louis' child. I had dim childhood memories of my father being a good dresser, but by the time he settled down to have a family, my dad no longer danced. One real leg and the other a heavy wooden prosthetic made it pretty hard. Dad told me so much about his life as a mariner and then a marine. If he could tell me stories about the guys in his platoon in Vietnam, why couldn't he tell me stories about his friends in East New York? I learned at the funeral that my uncle died of a heart attack 10 days after his wife died of cancer. The wife his family refused to acknowledge. They left a 16-year-old daughter and an 18-year-old son. I gave condolences to my cousin at the chapel and then later in her home, but she remained grief-stricken and silent amidst all the happy reminiscences. I read her sadness as an impenetrable force field. My mom and I left my uncle's wake with addresses and phone numbers. My dad and uncle's family and friends wanted to hear about my dad and get to know me. I left promising that I would be in touch. On the car ride home, I held my mother's hand. I looked into her pale face and hazel eyes, the face I admit I'd always wanted mine to resemble. I never saw or heard from or reached out to my family again. I was a stupid college student, busy discovering poetry and men in New York City. Too self-absorbed to digest what had happened in Brooklyn. I think, too, that I just wasn't ready to face all that my dad had buried. But so much that he tried to hide comes back to me when I least expect it. Fractured pieces of a whole. The distant memories from childhood when my father casually praised my pre-curly straight hair as good hair. The times he unconsciously pinched his nose between thumb and forefinger and audibly wished it weren't so wide. But then, too, the time he angrily remembered how he was called a nigger by drill sergeants in Marine boot camp. The times his friends were called that, too. About six years ago, I submitted a poem about my dad in Vietnam to a workshop with inaugural poet Elizabeth Alexander. Father's Heart Vietnam, black at night, you said green most of the day. You said you watched men die crossing rivers. You stalked under the canopy. Your feet grew rotten. A constant buzz. You loved James Brown and the soldiers who loved James Brown. Black your eyes and how they look past things. At times, your leg stump twitches. Sometimes, it swings to tap a beat. At the end of the class, the poet took me aside and told me that I should apply to a very competitive fellowship for African-American poets. It knocked the wind out of me that someone so accomplished saw my potential. And that she thought I belonged there. 
I hadn't meant to write about my father's blackness, but she saw it. When I told my family about the opportunity, my father lost his shit. We're not black, he yelled. We're not black. I fill out the application and write the required essay. But then I think of all the years of seeing only a mestiza in the mirror, the familiar mix of Spanish and indigenous most Central and South Americans see as their identity. And though now I know more of the truth, or think I do, I remember my cousins in Brooklyn, the cousins I never kept in touch with, the cousins who walked down American streets in undeniable and unshirkable black bodies. I remember how I chose not to get to know them, and I don't feel I deserve to hit send on that application. I love this story. I love it. Identity is so fuzzy, and this essay paints that so clearly. One of the things I want to point out about the writing is how Yadira gave us a picture of her face. She used the app to show us that she looks black. She also used her teacher as a mirror. Her teacher saw her as black, too. Yadira, on the other hand, isn't sure. I also love that her poem said that her dad looked past things. It gave us an idea of who her dad is. The poem wasn't just thrown in there. It served the story. Uh, you know, Yadira talked about the N-word in her story. You know, she used it. Um, I was wondering if that offended our listeners, even though she was telling us what someone called her dad. I mean, I wasn't offended. It seemed authentic. But I was just wondering, like, if you think other people would be offended hearing that in the story. I think if you're Black, you can use it. And if you're not Black, you can use it if you're an artist relaying a conversation. I agree with that. But I, gosh, I don't know. I hope other people um, also, you know, are, are, are with us. Um, with regards to identity, I think this whole story does exactly what we're talking about. The story is an introspection on the question, who am I? Identity is the underlying question in every story and maybe for all of us in our lives. For Aaron, looking like a Republican and feeling queer was a major conflict in his story. For Toby, she's struggling with letting her true, raw self show through her polished veneer. Her story makes me wonder why so many people are afraid to show their raw selves. Really? Yeah. Oh I, my God, you're kidding, right? People want to be liked. They want everyone to think that they have it together. Yeah, well, what we've learned over and over and over in storytelling is the more we reveal our raw selves, the more liked we are. So I'm really curious and interested in hearing more of Toby's story. And Yadira's question is this. Am I black if other people think I am? Can I apply for that scholarship even if I haven't lived life as a black woman? Ah, those are such big questions. So, okay, listener, ask yourself, who am I in every story you write? If you want more Yadira, listen to episode 22. Thank you, Yadira, Toby, and Aaron for sharing your stories. And thank you for listening. Our fall contest is on. Here's the prompt. A time you had an unpopular opinion, big or small. Write your stories, 1,200 words or fewer, and send them to info at writingclassradio.com. Deadline is September 30th, 2018. Guidelines on our website. 
If you have a business or startup, let me help you tell that story. I'll come to your office and teach all your employees how to better articulate why they do what they do. Because stories sell. And Allison is for hire too. Let her help your high school rising seniors refine their college essays. Early decision deadline is November 1st. To get started now, email info at Writing Class Radio or check our website for details. Writing Class Radio is produced by Virginia Laura, Andrea Askwitz, and me, Allison Langer. Theme music by Ari Herstand. Additional music by Justina Chandler, Andy G. Cohen, Dave Deppy, and Poddington Bear. Writing Class Radio is sponsored by and recorded at the University of Miami School of Communication. There's more writing class on our website, Twitter, and Facebook. Study the stories we study and listen to our craft talks. A new episode will drop the first Wednesday of every month, so look for us. And if you want inspiration in video form, we have a three-part series for sale on our website. Andrea and I reveal our top writing tips. Go to writingclassradio.com and download our videos. $20 for one or just $50 for all three. So you've written an essay. Or you're almost finished. Now what? Where do you send your story for publication? How do you format a story? Do you need a cover letter? We have the answers in a free publishing guide. To get our guide, all you have to do is sign up for our mailing list. Go to writingclassradio.com and hit the sign up button or send an email to us at info at writingclassradio.com. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? And if you want to take a class taught by Asia, the hottest performance poet on the college tour, Drop in a line by him. Okay. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Smile here. She wasn't supposed to read that part. Sorry. Okay, so this is what I do. It's said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. This podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends. Just remember, anyone can be a Cash Kid. You just have to learn how to become one. Get ready to grow your financial knowledge and your wallet with the Cash Kid Podcast.